Hey guys, as you know, the official beard company of the American History Podcast is Fable Beard Company. And right now, they've got some great new products for your beard with some amazing limited time seasonal scents. What says summertime more than lemonade and gum powder? You heard that right. Their newest scent is called The Refresher, and it has a scent profile that is, wait for it, gunpowder and lemonade. Seriously, I've tried it, and it's now my go-to beard oil product. I love this one. They have it in beard oil, butter, and of course, their fantastic all-in-one beard wash and conditioner. Now, of course, July is the month of independence, and we have the Patriot. This one features a blend of southern pecan pie, fresh berries, creamy vanilla, and light musk. As they say, this one smells like sunshine and freedom. Now, for the ladies in the audience, they've got products for you as well. The Enchantress is just the thing for you. It comes in hair oil and body lotion, just to name two. The scent profile features a blend of creamed peach, sparkling pear, lavender, and orange flowers. My wife loves this one, and I'm sure you will too. Now, head over to fablebeardcompany.co and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Remember, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15. Now let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5, The Sino-Japanese War, Part 1. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen Welcome, friends and listeners, to Episode 5, The Sino-Japanese War, Part 1. Now, in our last episode, we looked at the rise of the militant right. We talked about Hirohito and his desire to please those around him. Early on, we noted that the emperor was responsible for the military as he was the supreme commander. We also discussed how the military was independent of all civilian control. Now, to make matters worse, we saw that Hirohito was very much the sort of person who wanted to please those around him. Next, we traced the rise of the militant right in Japan up to the eve of fighting in China. We showed how it wasn't a clear-cut rise, but a complicated story. We also showed the role played by both the Americans and their British cousins in all of this. Now, between the Washington Naval Conference and the London Treaty, the Japanese right was able to convince the people that the United States and Great Britain were both out to get Japan. Whereas no one really complained about the former treaty, the latter represented a pyrrhic victory for the left. Now finally, I think the most interesting part of all of this was the fact that the investiture of Hirohito took a year. Talk about one heck of a coronation. Also, before we go any further, let me just say please visit the website for not only photos, but you can see some maps which will help with this episode. Now today we will start our exploration of the Sino-Japanese War and China in the years prior to World War II. Having said that, let's hop on our time machine and head back to the 18th of September, 1931, the year of the Manchurian Incident. To help us accomplish that, we have our song of the week. This week it is Ano Ano Kote um, by Masao Fujiwara. See you in a moment. 
no hira kama asangi ni harete iku hanta no mi no karuta mi no karuta kyomo noboro yo ano ne koete yama wa haruki no emeraru do やりは恐ろしい小高は壊し雪で水増すあずさ川あずさ川お花畑で昼寝と行けば行くや邪魔来る山の雨Now one might wonder how it was that Japan became involved in the Chinese territory of Manchuria. In the aftermath of the First Sino-Japanese War, the Kwantung Lease Territory was granted to the Empire of Japan as a provision of the Treaty of Shimonosuke, which ended the fighting. Amazingly enough, within a few weeks, we get an incident known as the Triple Intervention. This was when Russia, France, and Germany intervened to, as they put it, help, help China avoid the harsh terms imposed on it by the victorious Japanese in the aftermath of the recent conflict. However, of course, the Europeans weren't simply trying to help a struggling China. The treaty gave the Liaodong Peninsula to the Japanese, and it contained an important port, Port Arthur. Russia, who had begun construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway, were interested in a warm water port on the Pacific Ocean. They believed that both the railway and a port would allow them to consolidate their power in the region and further expand into the area. Now, for their part, the French had no dog in this fight, to be honest. However, they were obligated, under the terms of a treaty signed in 1892, to join Russia. The French had cordial relations with Japan, so they really weren't all that enthusiastic. However, a part of the calculation was also their fear of Germany. They knew if they reneged on the Russians, uh, then it could open up the possibility of the Germans and the Russians joining forces again, and they did not want that. So, the French sided with Russia. Now, this brings us to Germany. What were they doing in all this? First, they were interested in distracting the Russians' um, gaze to the east. They wanted them looking east, not west. Second, they wanted Russian assistance in acquiring territorial concessions in China. And the Russians and the Qing dynasty had a history of working together, mostly for the benefit of the Russians, but that's beside the point. So that is why you've got these three European powers working together to thwart Japanese ambition. Now you can probably imagine the Japanese weren't impressed with all this. They were surprised that the Russians did not only take Port Arthur, but they wanted the entire peninsula. The French and the Germans both gained concessions from the Chinese, and even the British got in on the game. Needless to say, the Japanese learned from all of this, and they were determined to prevent a European alliance from forming in the future. Uh, to step in and stop their own expansion. To this end, you get the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902. This was important to both the British and the Japanese. First, it marked an end of Britain's period of splendid isolation. This was a period in British history, about 17 years in length, where they had no entangling alliances. If you wonder why the Japanese and the British joined forces, 
It's because both were trying to balance out the Russian Empire. The Americans, it should be mentioned, were not happy with this treaty, and the same could be said for the British dominions, which were hostile to Japan. In the end, the Japanese now saw the Russians particularly as a rival in the region. By 1904, it was apparent both countries were unhappy with the status quo. Russia sought a buffer between themselves and Japan north of the 39th parallel. This would be neutral territory, and is, for the most part, what is today North Korea. Russia refused. This led the Japanese to believe they had no other choice but to go to war with the Russians, who they saw as a roadblock to their own expansion in Asia. Thus, the Japanese attacked Port Arthur, and then, three hours later, formally issued a declaration of war on Russia. Needless to say, the Tsar was stunned. Japan noted that the Russians had attacked Sweden without any notice in 1808. This was, however, long before the Hague Convention of 1899 codified the idea that nations should mediate disputes prior to engaging in hostilities. Americans would point to this in the years after Pearl Harbor as characteristic of Japanese aggression at the time. Now, the Japanese ended up winning decisively. I'm sure you know it, but the peace was mediated by President Theodore Roosevelt, for which he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Russia was rocked by revolution and humiliated as they were the first European power to lose a war to an Asian country. The Russians were shocked by the zeal shown by the Japanese infantrymen, but also by the lack of enthusiasm by their own soldiers. The Japanese, on the other hand, were happy with the outcome of the war, but incredibly angry at the terms of the treaty. The reason? They expected that, as winners, they'd receive two things, territorial gains and monetary compensation. They got neither. Riots erupted in Japanese cities, and you can believe this insult was brought up again and again by the ultranationalist right in the 1920s and 30s as a reminder of the double standard the Western powers had when it came to Japan. So this brings us up to what is known as the Wampashan Incident. This was what lit the fuse and sent the Japanese army into China. So let's dig in. A dispute between Korean farmers and the Chinese broke out on July 31st, or July 1st, I should say, 1931. There's no need to get lost in the weeds here, even though I'm tempted to. Suffice it to say, there was a significant amount of animosity between the Koreans and the Chinese. You had anti Chinese riots in Korea and anti Korean riots in China. Part of what was going on is that, on the one hand, China, under a newly formed government led by Chiang Kai-shek, was attempting to reassert itself. On the other hand, you had the Japanese Empire, firmly entrenched on the Korean Peninsula, looking to move into Manchuria. There was already animosity between the two, especially on the part of the Japanese. Why? The nationalist government had not only announced that previous treaties signed with Japan were null and void, but they expelled Japanese people from Manchuria, many of whom had settled there, built homes and businesses, and had lives there. There were attempts to resolve these issues. Negotiators from China insisted that Koreans had no right to reside and lease land outside of Gando District per the terms of the Gando Convention. The Japanese, on the other hand, insisted the Koreans, as subjects of the Japanese emperor, had the same rights as Japanese citizens. All of this led to the Mukden incident. This is what is known as a false flag attack. You might be asking yourself, what's a false flag attack? It's basically when you disguise the real perpetrators of the attack and blame another party. Think of what the Nazi party did in Germany to the Reichstag. They're the ones who set fire to the building. They made it look like, or at least laid the blame, on the German Communist Party. Okay, so with that out of the way, here we go. It's September the 18th, 1931. 
an explosion rocked the main line in the southern or South Manchurian Railway. The bombing was planned by the Japanese Kwantung Army, the largest and most prestigious army group in the Imperial Japanese Army. Now, as soon as he heard of the explosion, the Japanese Consul General, Morishima Morito, rushed to urge the staff officers to find a peaceful solution to what was about to come. Even he could see where this was going. Now, he was verbally assaulted by Major Hanaya Tadashi, who noted that the Supreme Command had been invoked. In other words, the army was in control. He whipped out his officer's sword and said, quote, Anyone who interferes with the authority of the Supreme Command gets this, end quote. Japan, or rather the Kwantung Army, had decided to roll the iron dice. What would follow was almost 15 years of death and destruction throughout the Pacific and would end with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the United States. Now, of course, the Japanese had an excuse. They claimed terrorists and bandits linked to the Chinese nationalists had perpetrated the attack. In fact, it was members of the army. Indeed, it appears that not only did the general army staff know this, or the army general staff knew this, but hundreds of senior military staff and civilians in Tokyo were in on it. On the morning of September 19th, the Japanese army invaded, and within days had captured major cities along a 730-mile front. This was partly due to the fact that warlord, um, and I'm going to butcher this name I know, Zhang Shuiliang, had told his forces to pull back rather than resist. He was criticized for this, but he argued that his army, while large, was no match for the highly trained Japanese army. The public was not happy with him, and the newspapers in Beijing referred to him as general non-resistance. Okay, so let's talk about this for a moment. The Japanese were no doubt well-trained, but the Chinese general had, by some estimates, 250,000 troops under his command. The Japanese invasion force was only 11,000 men strong. It's true that his army was probably the most well-equipped force in China at that point, but it was spread out and not really in a position to offer much resistance. You must also remember that Korea, which was separated from Manchuria only by a river, was a Japanese colony, and the Japanese had a large number of forces there, which could easily be brought to bear if needed. Units of the Japanese Kwantung Army seized control of strategic towns along the railway, and even attacked the barracks of the Chinese Manchurian Army within the walled city of Mukden. Not having expected an attack, many of the Chinese soldiers simply laid down their weapons or fled. As historian Herbert Bix notes, once set into motion, the Japanese attack led to a chain reaction of crises that, in the end, fundamentally altered the Japanese state going forward. The Chinese sought redress from the League of Nations, while the Japanese army sought reinforcements. All of the decisions on the part of the Japanese were being made by the army. The civilian leadership was cut out of the loop, as was the emperor. Rather than soil his imperial majesty's virtue, Count Makino Nobukai, Nobuaki, Nobuaki, the keeper of the privy seal, argued against the emperor taking control of the situation. On the evening of September 19th, members of the court met at the home of Baron Harada Kumao. I think it'll be helpful if we take a moment to look at the men in what is called the court group who surrounded Hirohito. Try to make it as simple as I can while at the same time not turning these men into cartoon caricatures of themselves. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids, 
or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. First was Sionji Kinmochi. He was the last of the venerable general group who had helped bring about the Meiji Restoration in the middle of the 19th century. He, as such, he was considered one of the founding fathers of modern Japan. He also served as prime minister twice and was the leader of the Japanese delegation to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. He was, at the age of 70, never married, but had many mistresses throughout his life, and took the current one with him as well as his favorite son and daughter. He is noted for the fact that, out of the entire court group, he was the only one who wanted to see Japan move to a multi-party political system. He was also the only one who thought the emperor should avoid political judgments. Now, a second member of the court was Makino Nobuaki. He was famous for leading the National Year-Long Enthronement Ceremony for the Emperor Hirohito in 1928. He aligned himself with the ultranationalist right, and it was this alignment which meant he wasn't well-liked by Sayonji. He was aligned with three other members of the court, Baron Harada Kumao, Prince Konoe Fumimaro, and Marquis Kiro Koichi. They all believed the authority of the emperor should be used to solve political problems. The outcome of the meeting was that they agreed the emperor should approve the military's actions. Further, they felt no one, including Sionji or the other senior palace officials, should do anything to provoke the military. Throughout the rest of the war in Manchuria, the court would hold to this position and essentially give the army free reign to do as it pleased in China. Then on September 21st, when the prime minister and his cabinet were meeting, General Hayashi, on his own authority, sent reinforcements across the border. For three days, he had been pressing Army Central Command to allow him to send in troops. The Prime Minister and his cabinet, however, were opposed to such actions. The Army Chief of Staff reported to the Emperor that the General, on his own authority, had sent troops across the border, and they were advancing on the city of Mukden. This was the perfect opportunity for the 33-year-old Emperor to back the civilian authorities, take control of the military, and stop the incident from spiraling out of control. The army was, at this point, politically weak. If ever there was a chance for him to rule as a British-style constitutional monarch, this was it. Furthermore, public opinion on Manchuria was divided. Instead, he accepted the situation as a fiat accompli and accepted, post facto, the fact that Japanese troops had been moved from Korea into China. He did, I should note, tell the chief of staff that in the future, the army must be more careful of doing this sort of thing. However, in the end, the emperor was not against the idea of seeing the army expand his empire. The last thing he wanted was to be disagreeable, and what he really wanted was to be seen as a great leader, similarly to how his grandfather, the Meiji emperor, was viewed. The only way to accomplish that was to expand the empire. Thus, the die was cast. Hirohito, having given his endorsement after the fact, had chosen to roll the iron dice. By early October, Chinese authority in Manchuria was all but ended. 
the emperor at this point sanctioned an air attack on Qingchao, the first such attack on a city since the end of World War I, and the last remaining vestige of Chinese power in the region. This led to widespread condemnation of Japan by the League of Nations. That body demanded that the Japanese withdraw by mid-November, but this was ignored. In Japan, the public was stirred up against the Chinese and the West by the press, radio, and even entertainment industries. Rather than negotiate with the League of Nations, the Japanese instead insisted on direct talks with the Chinese government, led by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. These talks never accomplished anything, but that was likely the outcome the Japanese had wanted. By March of 1932, Japan declared the now former province of Manchuria was a newly independent state called Manchukuo. And before we go further, just a bit of a side note. The last emperor of China, Hui, in September 1931, had written to the Japanese minister of war, making it known that he wished to be restored to the throne. His wife, the empress Wan Rong, expressed to him her feelings that this was a bad idea, bordering on treason. Kenji Dohara, the head of, the military, of military intelligence in Korea, visited the former emperor and, noticing his hesitancy, sent for Puyi's cousin, the so-called Eastern Jewel. Her real name was Yoshiko Kawashima, a flamboyant, openly bisexual woman with a great deal of influence on her cousin. She was also very pro-Japanese and would work as a spy for the Japanese during the next 15 years or so. She was eventually arrested in Beijing in November 1945 and executed with a bullet to the back of the head in 1948. Anyway, be that as it may, she was able to convince Puyi to go forward with the plan. Now, I'm sure Puyi was not happy with this situation, as when he arrived in Manchuria, he was put under house arrest in the hotel where he was staying. The excuse was, of course, to protect him. In the end, Puyi thought that Manchuria was just the start, and soon he'd be emperor of a reunited China. Of course, he couldn't have been more wrong but that's a tale for a different time. Believe it or not, an article in the New York Times from 1933 declared Puyi was the most democratic and friendly ruler in the world. So much for the newspaper of record. Things were just getting started. Sadly, it was going to just get worse. The emperor showed that he was weak at best, complicit with the right-wing militants at worst. I suspect he went along with things, as at this stage, they were winning. One wonders how Hirohito would have reacted if the situation in Manchuria had gone differently. Sadly, we shall never know. The pattern was now set. Mid-level military officers would take control of Japan's major domestic and foreign policy decisions, and make no mistake, it was mid-level officers who were pushing this. They would take action and simply bully their superiors into accepting the consequences. There was a history of this in Japan, and they even had a term to describe it. And I'm going to probably butcher it, but here we go. Gekko Kojo, Gekko Kuju, meaning those below overcoming those above. Officers in the army in the 1930s acted almost like gangs of criminals, speaking of the emperor in reverent tones, issuing threats in his name, and then demanding payment, bribes, in the name of loans, for which they would spare the victim. Sadly, these groups were financed by some of the biggest companies in Japan, such as Mitsui and Mitsubishi. You even had gangs in Manchuria who were linked to the army which went around and victimized the Chinese. Now, one incident is so surprising, I have to mention it. In May 1932, a group of naval officers, all wearing their uniforms, broke into the home of the prime minister, Tsuyoshi Unukai, and killed him. His offense? He had warned the emperor that the military was now operating outside of any responsible authority. Needless to say, their actions that night simply proved his point. Even so, 
Hirohito refused to punish the conspirators. This represents a turning point, the crossing of the Rubicon, so to speak. A new era of military domination had begun. Going forward, the Japanese government would no longer function as a parliamentary system. Instead, the prime minister and the cabinet would mostly be selected from the ranks of the military or the aristocracy. In December of 1933, when the leaders of parliament had the audacity to question the military budget for the upcoming year, they were denounced by the army and the navy ministries as communist conspirators. Civilian politicians, it was said by the military, um, had no right to question this. Here's a quote from the time. Such a movement to separate the public mind from the military is an attempt to disturb the harmonious unity of the public mind, the essential basis of national defense, and the military authorities cannot overlook it. Any and all civilian leaders who opposed the Manchurian operations and the higher budgets for the Army and the Navy were put on death lists. While a simple threat presented by such a list was enough to quiet most people, the few who weren't cowed by this were taken out and murdered. Okay, so this is where we're going to end the story for today and our look at least um, at the rise of Japanese militancy and also kind of the opening shots of the Sino-Japanese War. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you'll get access to episodes every, each one of these episodes a week early, and they'll be commercial free. You also get access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended. Now, if Patreon isn't your deal, you can support the show by visiting our sponsors, such as Fable Beard Company, the official beard oil of the American History Podcast. Remember, when you're shopping there, use the code SEAN15 for 15% off all orders. We also have a buy me a coffee setup. Just message me for that information. Speaking of which, I love email. So send it my way at sean at the American History Podcast.com. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to season four of the American History Podcast. I'll see you. Shut that thing off. Shut it off or I'll rip. Oh, please, wait till I get it. Wait a minute.